0: I'm Kathy with a C. And I'm Kathy with a K. And this is Season 2 of Killer Destinations. Today's destination is La Mesa, California. La Mesa is a city of about 60,000 residents in East San Diego County. Following Spanish colonization in 1769, what is now La Mesa became part of the lands of Mission San Diego de Alcala, This is the first of the 21 missions that comprise California's historic mission trail that begins in San Diego and ends in San Francisco. In 1868, livestock caretaker Robert Allison arrived in San Diego and was attracted to the natural springs that spotted the landscape. Allison Springs, later renamed La Mesa Springs, prospered and grew after the arrival of the San Diego and Cuyamaca Eastern Railroad in 1889. After incorporation, La Mesa grew steadily, reaching almost 4,000 residents by 1940. Post-World War II, it exemplified the exponential suburban growth of the region, expanding to the north and west of Old Downtown to accommodate over 50,000 residents by 1980. San Diego County is also home to three world-class universities, bringing almost 100,000 students to the area every year. But in 1984, the disappearance of one young college co-ed morphed into a tragic tale of murder with La Mesa at the epicenter.
1: At approximately 2:30 a.m. on Tuesday, November 20th, 1984, The California Highway Patrol contacted the City of La Mesa Police Department, informing them that there was an abandoned vehicle at the intersection of Fletcher Parkway and Jackson Drive in La Mesa. Officer Charles Drake with the La Mesa PD arrived at the scene where CHP officers were waiting and saw the abandoned Dodge Colt on the side of the road. The vehicle's emergency flashers were on. On the trunk lid were car keys, a flashlight, and the gas tank cap. The fuel door on the side of the car was open and a gas can was on the ground. Officer Drake opened the car door and saw a wallet lying on the passenger seat. The ID in the wallet belonged to Ann Catherine Swankey, age 22. Officer Drake secured the vehicle scene knowing that something ominous was afoot. It was soon determined that Ann Swankey had not returned home and was presumed kidnapped. Anne was a senior at the University of San Diego and set to graduate in five weeks. Although she had enough units to have completed her studies in the winter semester, she intended to walk in the May graduation, which was six months away. Anne was an honors student who carried a 3.7 GPA and was a music and French major. She wanted to be an opera singer and actually taught herself piano to accompany her singing. Anne lived with her parents in San Carlos, just a few miles away from the intersection where she was last seen. She was one of six children, two brothers and three sisters, and lived with her mother, Kathleen, and her father, Dr. John Swankey, who was a philosophy professor at the University of San Diego, where Anne was a student. The University of San Diego is one of the three major universities in San Diego County, and this is a small private Catholic college, which at the time had about 3,500 undergrads. On the night her vehicle was found, investigators spoke with Gail Graham, an employee of a Shell gas station on Jackson Drive, near the intersection with Fletcher Parkway, where Ann's car was found. Graham told authorities that sometime after midnight, a young woman walked in with a gas can. She had come from the direction of Fletcher Parkway, filled her gas can, and then left on foot. So, Kath, this location of the gas station is only about a four-minute walk to where Ann's car was found. Search efforts were immediately undertaken, and the San Diego County Sheriff's Office joined the La Mesa Police in the investigation. It was determined that on the evening of Monday, November 19th, 1984, Ann was returning home from a sorority function at the University of San Diego and stopped to visit her boyfriend, Greg. Greg was a student at San Diego State University, one of the other two of the three major universities in the area, and he lived near the campus. Anne and Greg hung out with a couple of friends, and Anne left her boyfriend's apartment between 12.30 a.m. and 1 a.m. on Tuesday morning. And before she left, Anne had actually mentioned to Greg that her car was low on gas. Police immediately released information to the press about the possible abduction and asked for help from the public in finding Anne.
0: After hearing about the possible abduction on the news, Richard Leva called the La Mesa police on Tuesday night. He told investigators that he was driving home from his girlfriend's place and stopped at a red light at the intersection of Fletcher Parkway and Jackson at about 1.15 or 1.30 in the morning. He was eastbound on Fletcher, stopped at the red light, and waiting to make a left turn when he noticed a car parked on Jackson and a person appearing to put gas in the car. Richard looked away momentarily, and when he looked back, he saw another vehicle had parked behind the first one he had no idea where the second vehicle came from as he made his left turn he saw the silhouettes of two people who appeared to be in an embrace although he briefly considered it might be a kidnapping he dismissed the thought and headed home however richard did see the rear vehicle's license plate and remembered that it reminded him of the words tin can he told investigators that there were 3 letters then three more letters, and a number that he couldn't recall. He believed the letters were something like CNC, TNC, or TNC, CNC, plus a number.
1: And what's interesting about this, too, is that back in 1984, California license plates that were standard license plates began with one number, had three letters, and then three numbers. So anything that was different meant that it was a personalized plate.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Ann's family immediately offered a $5,000 reward for information that would assist investigators with an arrest, not a conviction.
1: So that's different from a lot of rewards that are offered. Correct. And that's awesome. They're just looking to get the police out there
0: moving. They just want figure information. Figure out who did it. Exactly. Let's get our daughter back. Yes. And later on, Crime Stoppers added $1,000, and an anonymous donor added $20,000. Wow. Right.
1: Did that ever become public, who that anonymous donor was?
0: No, I couldn't see anything in the newspapers as to who donated that money. So that's amazing. In the early morning hours of Saturday, November 24th, 1984, now this was two days after Thanksgiving and five days after Ann vanished, James McNally was walking in the hills near his Spring Valley home. So, Kath, Spring Valley is an unincorporated area of San Diego County, and I believe part of it's in the city of La Mesa. I think the other part's in El Cajon.
1: But this is eastern San Diego County.
0: Correct. So James was looking over the hills with his binoculars, and he noticed something unusual and climbed down a steep, rocky hill where he found Anne's body. Now, Kath, this was about seven miles from the intersection of Fletcher and Jackson, where she was abducted, and this was a rural area with a lot of open space. San Diego County Sheriff's Detectives Robert Fulmer and Craig Henderson arrived at the scene. Anne's body was lying face down in the mud near the bottom of a steep rocky hill. Except for socks, she was nude from the waist down. Around her neck was a silver choke chain used to leash a dog. After rolling her body over, Detective Henderson realized Anne's throat had been cut. Her shirt, bra, and sweater vest had been sliced through, exposing her upper torso. Her pants were a few feet away, but they had been sliced through along the zipper. Her shoes were found uphill, as were her underpants. Detective Henderson believed her body had been there for several days. And one thing that I found interesting when I was doing research on this case is literally every single newspaper article I read about her body discovery said that she was found fully clothed.
1: Why do you think that is? I
0: don't know if reporting well or respecting her integrity. I don't know. But this was massive news. And I am telling you, paper after paper after paper reported the same thing. Maybe the explanations as simple as they're using the same Associated Press or UPI article. I don't know. But there was not a single one that I read that was accurate because I got the information from the court records. In an article in the San Diego Sentinel dated December 5th, 1984, Anne's father, Professor Swanke, was quoted as saying, Our family is tremendously grateful to the University of San Diego community, Our Lady of Grace Parish, friends and concerned citizens of San Diego County who have contributed to this reward fund. Many of you did so hoping, as we did, that we would find Anne alive. The person or persons who killed our daughter must be stopped before they strike again. Therefore, we are offering this reward for information to lead not only to their apprehension, but their conviction. On Monday, November 26, after students returned to the University of San Diego from Thanksgiving break, a memorial mass was offered in Anne's honor in the Founders Hall Chapel. It was crowded with students and faculty and celebrated by the chaplain for campus ministry. A rosary was held the next night at Our Lady of Grace Church in El Cajon. On November 28, 1984, a funeral mass was held at the same church. Over 30 priests celebrated the mass to a packed church. And Kath, I'm assuming that it was because of these swankies' connections and activities in the Catholic Church. Because 30 is a lot. Yeah, 30 priests, they call it concelebrating. 30 priests concelebrating a mass is huge. But I know that Professor Swankey was very active in the church. In fact, years later, he went down and taught philosophy to seminarians and missionaries in Tijuana, Mexico. I believe it was through the Missionary Fathers of Charity started by Mother Teresa. But Mother Teresa and Professor Swankey actually became very good friends. As you know, Kath, I went to the University of San Diego. You did? <laughs> <laughs> and I was there when Ann Swankey was there. I didn't know her except by sight, just because the school was so small. In fact, actually, your sister drove me down so that I could hand deliver my handwritten application to the admissions (laughs) office on the day it was due.
1: So this was your top choice then of
0: school, is what I'm hearing. Um, Well, it was kind of my only choice. Here's how it came to be determined that I was going to USD. My dad was like, your brother's at USD. That's where you're going. And I was like, okay. (laughs) It was this very deep philosophical moment. And then later, here's the funny part. I thought, oh gosh, what if I don't get in? I should apply to another school just in case. So I apply to this other school. I get a rejection letter saying that I filled out my application improperly. (laughs) (laughs) And it was before I got accepted to USD. So in my head, I was like, oh my goodness, all my eggs were in one basket. Exactly. (laughs) I wasn't exactly like super on it back then. (laughs) No,
1: but look at how well you turned out. They were lucky to have you. It took a
0: while. But anyway, so while I was there, I had a roommate, Laura, who had Professor Swanky's philosophy class. And we returned from Thanksgiving break. And of course, the news is all over campus. She comes back to the room one day and she's so upset, like tears in her eyes. I said, what happened? And she went to her philosophy class and Professor Swanky was there. And he started to try to teach and he broke down bawling. And this guy was a gentleman to the core. He always wore a suit and tie to class. He just was always dressed, you know, to the nines as a professor. There's probably a
1: sign of respect for him.
0: Everybody respected Professor Swanky. Anyway, so Laura says he breaks down crying and he starts saying, I told her, I told her never to take rides from strangers. She was to never take a ride from a stranger. Obviously, at this point, he does not know what the witness saw, and he thought that she got into a car voluntarily. And so he's telling him, don't ever take rides from strangers, and just was bawling, and then let the class go. Two days later, the class is reconvened. He starts to teach. He breaks down crying again and says, I can't do this. I thought I could do this, but I can't do this.
1: He probably felt a responsibility to the kids, but it was also probably you need to get out of your mind at that point. And so if you can go to work, it can take up space that you'd be thinking of other things.
0: Right. And he's standing in front of a class of his daughter's contemporaries. Right.
1: And all the women in the class probably looked just like his daughter to him at that point.
0: You know, so anyway, so, so sad. Yeah, I loved USD. I was appreciative every single day I was there. And I was there a lot because I lived on the hill for four years and did not have a car the entire four <laughs> years. <laughs> and I felt like I hung out with the other kids who didn't have cars. Oh, so you were it
1: the was sad, sad kids.
0: It was sad. We were the sad kids. Oh, and to my roommate, Laura, I'm sorry that I was loud. I'm sorry that I stayed up late. I'm sorry that I kept my half of the room filthy. And I'm sorry that I wore your dad's sweater and then lied to you about it. <laughs> <laughs> trying to think what else. I think that covers it. Laura, forgive me.
1: <laughs> in the aftermath of Anne's tragic death, La Mesa police and San Diego sheriffs were working diligently to find leads. In an article dated December 6, 1984, in the La Mesa Courier by journalist John Christopher Weill, Sheriff Sergeant Barry Zuniga said that John Douglas, a special agent for the FBI, was putting together a psychological profile of Ann's killer. Now, anybody who follows true crime should probably know this man's name. exactly, If not met him or fan stalked him. Right. <laughs> in just the best of ways. <laughs>
0: In the right sort of stalking manner. Yeah, exactly.
1: You had the right mentality when you were doing it. But for those who haven't heard the name, he is one of the people credited with creating the FBI's profiling program. And he was the chief of the investigative support unit, which was a division of the FBI's National Center for Analysis of Violent Crime. I understand that the Netflix show Mindhunter Mm -hmm. is also very loosely based on some of his tales of what he did when he was with the FBI.
0: There were two other people that he worked really closely with. I believe one was Ressler and then there was a... Anne Burgess and Robert Ressler. Yeah.
1: In this article, Sergeant Zuniga reiterated that they were looking for leads from the public and that investigators had not yet determined whether Anne's murder was related to any other murders in East San Diego County. Almost a month before Anne's murder, on October 23, 1984, 24-year-old Rhonda Strang was babysitting three-year-old Amber Fisher, who was a friend's daughter. They were in Rhonda's home in Lakeside, which is northeast of La Mesa. Rhonda's five-year-old child came home from school to find that her mother and Amber had been murdered. Their throats had been brutally cut. Rhonda's 11-month-old baby had not been harmed, and no arrests had been made in that case. In the previously mentioned La Mesa Courier article, Sheriff Sergeant Dennis Hartman, who was in charge of Anne's investigation, said that they received many calls comparing Anne's murder to Rhonda and Amber's, but he admitted they did not yet have any connection. The profile by the FBI, according to the article, was going to be used to compare other unsolved cases in San Diego County that could possibly be linked to these recent ones. Law enforcement continued to implore the public for help.
0: Kath, La Mesa Police Department had a crime specialist named Carol Fashing, and after Anne's abduction, she made recommendations about how to behave if you had car trouble. She said, keep your emergency flashers on, lock your doors, raise your hoods, stay in your vehicles with your windows up, and just wait for help. So one of the things that became super popular after this were those big plastic call the police signs. She was part of the movement that put the word out that young women Or anyone who had car trouble could put this sign in their back window and you could buy them at the YMCA for $5.
1: So these signs were white plastic Mm -hmm. and they spanned the length of your back window. Right. And so the lettering was like this pinky neon orange so that the white would call attention in the dark, but then the neon letters and numbers would actually pop off of the back.
0: I remember the signs, but I don't remember the colors, but they were super popular. Everybody got them. Everybody
1: had them, especially because. There were no cell phones at the time. Correct. And so in California, there is a really strong network of call boxes that you can use. And I don't know about other states, mm-hmm. but the fact is, is that what if you weren't on the freeway? What if you were on a rural road like Ann Swonky was? Right. And so this was the intent, because do you remember at the time, like the 80s and 90s in California, there was a huge string of people who would impersonate police officers. And there
0: were serial killers, well, too. Yeah. They sold over a thousand after Anne's abduction, probably in like the first week. Absolutely. Another thing the La Mesa Police Department did is they passed out flyers at the gas stations in the area saying, hey, we have this program that if you're a female and you're stranded, we will escort you to where you need to be. So just call the La Mesa Police Department. And apparently this program had been in existence for over 25 years and they had helped over 2,600 motorists, but they helped them because the officers came across stranded motorists and assisted them rather than having the motorists call them.
1: In an article for the Spring Valley Bulletin in early December 1984, Sheriff Sergeant Dennis Hartman said that similarities existed between Ann's case and another earlier case. This one occurred five months before Ann's murder and involved a woman in El Cajon. El Cajon is a city in San Diego County that is right next to La Mesa where Ann was kidnapped. According to a Los Angeles Times article by Glenn Birkins, a woman named Jody Santiago was abducted from Fletcher Parkway and Marshall Avenue in El Cajon. So Fletcher Parkway, as you'll recall, is the same road that Ann Swonkey's car was on. And Jody's site is about four miles away on the same street from that spot.
0: So, Kath, as you know, Ann's vehicle was located on Jackson at its intersection with Fletcher Parkway. But Jody's abduction site off of Fletcher Parkway was about 4 miles northeast of Ann's vehicle location. Court records show that on the evening of June 8, 1984, 34-year-old Jody Santiago was in the San Diego area visiting her brother. She left a restaurant in El Cajon sometime between 10:30 and 11 p.m. to walk back to her brother's apartment. As she passed the apartment complex's parking lot, A man came up behind her, grabbed her, and forced her at knife point into his car and sped away. The next morning at approximately 6.40 a.m., two women were on their morning walk in La Mesa near the intersection of Calavo and Lyons when they came across Jody's body. This was approximately four and a half miles from her abduction site. She was in the brush on the side of the road, naked below the waist with her face and torso covered in blood. But she was alive. Jody was making moaning and gurgling sounds. Her throat had been cut. There was a significant amount of blood on the weeds and on the side of the road, suggesting that her injuries had been inflicted at the scene. At the hospital, a vascular and trauma surgeon noted that her throat wound extended to her neck vertebrae. Jody's left jugular vein was severed, but the carotid artery remained intact. Below the wound, She had bruising consistent with a ligature having been applied to her neck. She suffered a severe skull fracture extending from behind her head nearly across to each of her ears. Miraculously, surgeons reconstructed her neck and she was released from the hospital 18 days later.
1: When I saw that, that's just crazy. I know, it's crazy. 18
0: days. I know, and I read so many newspapers trying to figure out what hospital she was at just to, you know, give them kudos, but right. I, could, I couldn't find it anywhere. Those surgeons must have been the bomb. According to a December 17th, 1984 article in the San Diego Tribune by Claude Walbert, San Diego detectives flew to Jody's home state of Washington to re-interview her after they potentially connected her case with Anne's. According to Jody, her attacker told her that if she ran or screamed, he would cut her throat. His car was a dark brown sports car with louvers on the back window. Jody recalled that this man took her to a house with a semicircular driveway and led her up some stairs to the front door. She was taken to a bedroom with boxes where he tied her hands behind her. She was then taken to another bedroom and placed on a bed. There, she was choked until she lost consciousness and does not remember anything past that point.
1: You know, we talked about this in the Jennifer Shewitt case. Mm -hmm. This was the little girl from Dickinson, Texas. Right. It's amazing how our brain... Protects us. Exactly.
0: Yes. I wouldn't want to remember. I wouldn't. Yeah, no. So semen was found on Jody, suggesting a sexual assault, but they could not be certain because Jody had sexual contact the night prior which also could have accounted for the semen. When detectives flew back to Washington, they asked Jody to help with a composite drawing, and she agreed. The composite drawing was then widely published via newspaper and television. According to a December 12, 1984 article in the Los Angeles Times by Glenn Berkins, police believed that the same man who kidnapped Jody was the individual who kidnapped and murdered Ann Swankie. Along with the sketch was a description. Caucasian male, five foot ten, medium solid build, blonde or light hair, and a mustache, slightly bulging eyes, driving a sporty brown car with louvers over the back window. She specified that the car had an automatic transmission and sheepskin seat covers. According to an Associated Press article, the sketch was released on Tuesday, December 11, 1984, and there were over 100 tips in the first 24 hours and eventually over 400 tips over the next couple weeks. And Kath, I read somewhere in one of the newspapers that there was eventually over 1,000 tips. The public was reminded that a reward was offered. The article pointed out that most of the tips did not go anywhere or assist the police, but some of the tips revealed people with criminal histories. So Kath, what was later revealed to the press is that they took the most promising tips and they assigned surveillance teams to these individuals.
1: So then, in mid-December, officers asked Jody Santiago to fly down to San Diego to look at a police lineup, and she agreed. According to court records, Jody examined a photo spread and picked one man and identified him as her attacker. He was also one of the men the police were surveilling. Detectives drove Jody to his house and confirmed it was the one she was taken to. On December 16, 1984, so almost two months after Ann Swanky's death, San Diego County Sheriff John Duffy announced that 29-year-old David Lucas was booked into jail for the murders of 22-year-old University of San Diego student Ann Swankey, 24-year-old Rhonda Strang, 3-year-old Amber Fisher, as well as the attempted murder of 34-year-old Jody Santiago. The sheriff said tips from the public and good old hard-nosed police work by the sheriff's department and the La Mesa Police Department led to Lucas's arrest. Lucas co-owned a carpet cleaning business called Carpet Maintenance Company. He lived in an unincorporated community in Spring Valley, which was within 10 minutes of Ann's abduction site and about 15 minutes from where Jody was discovered.
0: You know, Kath, once they identified him, of course, the journalists flock to the neighborhood and they start interviewing the neighbors. And so one of the neighbors says, there was a lot of people partying, a lot of trash in the backyard and a little nudity. It was wild. (laughs) Like, wow. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. But that sounds like the guy that you had arrested in your neighborhood recently.
1: Okay. I did not have him arrested. I called 911. He had himself arrested. That is. A,
0: you know what? I like that. You're right. He had himself arrested. That's it's a good, good point.
1: According to journalist Claude Walbert of the San Diego Evening Tribune, in a December 17th, 1984 article, Lucas was arraigned on two counts of kidnapping, one for Anne and one for Jody. Three counts of murder, and one count of attempted murder. Lucas pleaded not guilty to all charges and was denied bail. It was also reported that Lucas had a prior conviction for forcible rape and assault with a deadly weapon in connection with a 1973 attack on a 21 year old woman who was the maid of a family friend. Lucas, who was 18 at the time, denied the allegations and was sent to the California Youth Authority.
0: And, Kath, I could not find any articles on how long he had to be there.
1: I'm actually surprised at the age of 18 that that's where he was sent
0: because he was no longer a minor. But I do know that in that case, he was interviewed by a psychologist. And the newspapers reported different things on the results of that psychological interview. But I think that had to do with why he was placed in the California Youth Authority. That makes sense. Yeah. But I don't even want to say what they were because honestly, I didn't feel like they were credible.
1: After Lucas's December 1984 arraignment, attorney Tony Gillum, who represented Lucas on his 1973 conviction, professed his client's innocence for the current murder charges, saying, My guy is innocent and the whole public thinks he's guilty. I think my guy is where he is today because of a conviction 11 years ago. Gillum had asked the court for a gag order on the case and that cameras be excluded from the courtroom. He also asked the judge to allow his client to wear civilian clothes. All of these requests were denied.
0: After the arraignment, it became public that investigators were looking at Lucas as a suspect in other cases. Between May of 1979 and Anne's murder in November of 1984, there were a total of six unsolved murders in East San Diego County where the perpetrator slashed the victim's throats. So this leaves three victims who we have not discussed. Investigators looked into the murder of Gail Garcia. On December 8, 1981, this is three years before Ann's murder, a 29-year-old real estate agent from Spring Valley was murdered as she waited to show an empty Spring Valley home to prospective buyers. The house belonged to one of Gail's friends, Annette, who was in the process of breaking up with her boyfriend, William. That day, Annette called Gail at about 5.35 p.m. to let her know that William wanted a friend of his to see the house. But Annette did not agree to this. Annette grabbed her brother, hopped in the car, and drove to the open house. The phone was ringing when they entered the house at 6.05 p.m., and Annette's brother answered the phone. It was Annette's boyfriend, William, on the phone wanting to know if Gail was still there showing the house. Annette's brother then began walking through the house looking for Gail. He discovered her body lying on the floor in the bedroom. Her throat had been slashed, and petechial hemorrhaging suggested that she had been strangled. So in 1979, two years before Gail's murder and five years before Ann Swankey’s murder, Michael and Suzanne Jacobs were a young couple living in the Normal Heights neighborhood with their three-year-old son, Colin, and their two dogs. Now, Kath, Normal Heights is east of La Mesa. It's not a city unto itself. It's like a neighborhood a residential community. On May 4th, 1979, the couple was expecting the delivery of a new dinette set. According to court records, that day, Michael left the house at 6 a.m. to go to work. Around 5 p.m., When Michael arrived home from work, he was surprised to see their new dinette set was on the front porch. He entered the house and went to the bathroom, which he found covered in blood. As he backed out of the bathroom, he saw his three-year-old son lying dead on the floor of the master bedroom. Michael ran out of the house and yelled to his neighbors, Margaret and Ed Harris, who happened to be outside. He then collapsed on the ground, unable to speak. The Harrises went into the Jacobs' home and saw Colin's body just inside the master bedroom and Suzanne's body further inside the master bedroom, and they called the police. Both Suzanne and little Colin had their throats slashed. There was also evidence that Suzanne was strangled, but no sexual assault occurred. From the crime scene, blonde hair that was stuck in Suzanne's hand, blood samples, five fingerprints, and a shoe print with a distinctive sole pattern were recovered as evidence. It appeared to detectives that the perpetrator committed the crimes, then tried to clean themselves up at the kitchen sink. On the bathroom rug was a folded, blood-stained scrap of paper with handwritten printing that read, Love Insurance, and the phone number... 280 280- 1700. Love Insurance was a local insurance agency. Kath, why are so many dogs now suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, said she's seeing more issues with joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health their food. What she
1: discovered is actually the way many dog foods are made can create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many of the premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw a huge transformation in their health. She's made a 20 minute video explaining step by step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health.
0: And Kath, as you know, we have a schnauzer named Ollie. And even though my husband insists he is not, he is overly flatulent. (laughs) After I started giving him this food, I swear there was a reduction in his smell.
1: I love that. And I'll come over to your house now. Exactly. Well, and you know, we have a Vishla we call Orange, and she's a senior dog. And over the last couple of weeks, she has actually had more energy to be running around the backyard with the younger dog, the Doberman we call Brown.
0: Or crazy. A little <laughs> bit. So if you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to BadlandsFood.com slash KillerD and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D.com slash D.
1: On August 1, 1985, less than a year after Ann Swankey's murder, David Lucas was charged with these additional three murders under a separate case number. He entered a not guilty plea. One and a half years later, the prosecution made a motion to consolidate both cases so that all six murders and the single attempted murder charge could all go to trial at the same time. The defense vehemently opposed this motion, knowing that the stronger cases would bolster the weaker cases and help the prosecution overall. The defense team said the five killings were not so distinctive as to reflect the signature of a single perpetrator. He argued a joint trial of all the charges prejudiced his client during the guilt and penalty phases. The court pointed out that these five crimes were all incidents involving slim, attractive Caucasian women with brown hair in their 20s or 30s. To the extent that two of these incidents also involved the killing of young children, it appeared that the children were not the primary targets, but were instead killed to eliminate potential witnesses to the adult killings. None of the murders disclosed any motive for the killings, with no conclusive evidence of sexual assault, theft, or obvious motive for revenge.
0: So even though Jody was found with semen because she had had sex the night prior, they couldn't say with certainty that she was sexually assaulted.
1: But the most important similarity in all the murders was the characteristics of the inflicted throat wounds. All of the victims in this case had severe slashing throat wounds that spanned nearly ear to ear and cut deeply through the tissues of the throat nearly to the vertebrae. The wounds were distinctive based on how they invaded each victim's throat in terms of depth, height, and length. Judge Laura Palmer-Hams granted the motion to consolidate and jury selection began August 23, 1988. Jury selection took three and a half months and ended on December eighth. Nearly a month later, on January 3, 1989, the trial began. This was over four years after Anne's murder and nearly 10 years after Suzanne and Colin's murder. Defense attorneys Alex Landon and Steve Feldman were appointed to represent David Lucas, and the state was represented by deputy district attorneys Daniel Williams and George Clark. Trial lasted just over five months.
0: Kath, the amount of information in the appellate briefs and the court records was voluminous. So we're going to touch on each case going in chronological order, beginning with the first victims, but we're just hitting high points.
1: We're just going to try and summarize this, despite the fact that Kathy wants to do more.
0: Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Five months of trial. There were a lot of witnesses. We're skipping a lot. Okay. So first was Suzanne and three-year-old Colin Jacobs. They were the ones who were getting the new dinette set and were murdered on May 4th, 1979. So Kath, here's the crazy thing about these two. Someone else was in jail at the time, charged with their murders, and pending trial. Once Lucas is arrested, police officers re-examine their suspect and realize that Lucas was probably their guy. So they released this man from jail and charged Lucas with their murders. The person they arrested was named John Massingale, and he confessed to their murders purportedly under police coercion and then later recanted. One important fact about Massengale was that he had no education and he was functionally illiterate. So during the trial, Lucas's defense attorneys obviously call this guy to the stand and they're like, isn't it true that you confessed to the murders, et cetera, et cetera. And he said, yeah, I did because the police were threatening me. They told me I was going to get the death penalty, all this kind of stuff. So he stuck to his recantation and said, I never met these people. I did not do this. Massingale's illiteracy is significant because at the trial, the prosecutors compared his handwriting to the love insurance note found at Suzanne and Collins' crime scene. John Harris, a handwriting expert and documents examiner, used enlarged photos of the note to compare the handwriting samples. Harris testified that he believed with reasonable certainty that David Lucas wrote the note. So, Kath, what he did is he compared... Handwriting samples from probation reports that Lucas had to fill out when he was convicted of that old rape in 1973. Frank Clark, who was Lucas's business partner in the carpet cleaning company, was familiar with Lucas's handwriting and also testified that he believed the love insurance note was written by Lucas. Naturally, the defense had an expert take the stand, and he said it was too small a sample with too many inconsistencies. To determine who was the author. A significant fact that the prosecution brought out was that two months after Suzanne and Colin were murdered, Lucas bought auto insurance for his car through the Love Insurance Agency. The prosecution also brought out the fact that David Lucas lived in Normal Heights at the time of Suzanne and Colin's murder.
1: The neighbors who helped Suzanne's husband, Michael, call the police were Margaret and Ed Harris. On the morning of the murder, Margaret noticed a wine-colored sports car in the Jacobs driveway between 8 and 9 a.m. She said it looked like an MGB, which is a small, sporty British car.
0: I had to look that up online to find out what that was. (laughs) And I
1: had to ask Kathy what it was when I read this.
0: (laughs) It's a small, sporty British car. Okay.
1: The prosecution presented evidence that Lucas's mother had a 1974 M.G. Midget Roadster, which is similar to an M.G.B., and the prosecution brought up that Lucas was known to borrow his mother's car. The rear of the M.G. Midget and the M.G.B. sports car were identical. Now, according to Lucas's employment records from Precision Metal, where he worked when Suzanne and Colin Jacobs were murdered, employee attendance records showed Lucas was not at work on the day before or the day after the murders prosecution also presented evidence that lucas's work boots were similar to the boot prints found at the scene hair samples clenched in suzanne's fist were compared with hair samples from lucas and massingale this was the man who falsely confessed to the murders after saying that he was pressured by police to do so The prosecution expert excluded Massingale as the source of those hairs, however, the expert was unable to either include or exclude Lucas as the source of the hair found in Suzanne's right hand. John Torres, a latent print examiner for the San Diego Police Department, found only five prints at the crime scene with clear enough ridge detail to be of value for purposes of attempting possible identification. Of these, Torres believed two prints lifted from a door doorjamb leading from the dining room to the kitchen matched Michael Jacobs, Suzanne's husband. Torres could not identify the three remaining prints, two that were recovered from the door doorjamb between the dining room and the kitchen, and a palm print from the bathroom door doorjamb as originating from Lucas, Suzanne, Colin, or Michael. Torres, however, did not examine these three prints to ascertain whether Massingale could be excluded as the donor of these prints. Don't ask me how I know this, Kath. But if you get fingerprinted now, they actually take your palm print. They take the print from the side of your hand. True story. And it's all electronic now. Or so I've read. So because you have things like these palm prints, you know, when they used to only take fingerprints and you use the palm of your hand to open a door. Which makes
0: total sense. It
1: does. It really surprised me when I heard about that.
0: Years ago, and I am talking probably 20 years ago, when I was a young lawyer, I represented a woman who was involved in an auto accident. I was defending her like her insurance company hired me. However, through the course of our client meeting, I found out that she was raped in her home. She was like 80. Oh, my God. Yeah. And it was when this rapist was targeting old people in this one particular neighborhood. It was awful. So she was one of those. So we get into this very long discussion about it. He was caught because he had climbed in her window and was hiding behind a door. She unexpectedly came in. And so he put his hand up to stop the door from hitting him. In all of the evidence at all of the crime scenes... Hers was the first one to produce a usable palm print. It's crazy, but you're right. Like, it's smart to take palm prints. Yeah. The next victim was Gail Garcia, who was murdered on December 8th, 1981. And she was the realtor who was showing the house for her friend Annette. At the scene of the murder, Gale's pants had two parallel smears running down them that appeared consistent with wipe marks from a bloody knife blade. In an attempt to establish a connection to Lucas, the prosecution brought out the fact that a 1985 search of Lucas's residence resulted in the seizure of a sheath from a Model 112 buck knife. A detective testified that he compared photographs of the blood smears on Gail's pants with a Model 112 buck knife and concluded that the stains were consistent with that model. The detective did not compare the smears with any other type of knife and admitted that the Model 112 was a relatively common knife. Now, if you recall, Gail was trying to get a buyer for her friend Annette's house, and Annette had broken up with her boyfriend. The defense elicited testimony from Annette that at the time of Gail's murder, she had a restraining order in effect against her boyfriend, William. Also, while at the scene of Gail's murder, Annette saw a motorcyclist come down the street where the crime scene was, slow down, and this guy looked like William's brother. So she told the sheriff's sergeant, hey, that guy on the motorcycle looks like William's brother. So the sergeant had a deputy follow him, pull him over, and positively identify him as William's brother. That was brought out, obviously, to suggest that William or his brother were somehow involved in Gale's murder and not Lucas. At trial, criminalist Ron Barry examined the usable latent fingerprints lifted from Gale's crime scene, but none matched Lucas. The criminalist did not examine Gail's broken fingernail for skin, blood, or any other trace evidence.
1: I thought it was funny because it was broken fingernail,
0: not fingernails. Exactly. There was like one one broken fingernail. At trial, Lucas had multiple relatives testify that he was at a family birthday party at the time of the murder with his then future wife. And Kath, the reason they remembered this specific event was because as Lucas was leaving the party, his brother said something derogatory, and it sort of caused a little bit of a family kerfuffle. The next victim, Jodi Santiago, who was attacked on June 8th, 1984, was the only one who lived to testify against Lucas. She was the one kidnapped in the brown sports car with louvers on the rear windows. The prosecution brought out the fact that Lucas had moved from his normal Heights neighborhood to Spring Valley in 1983, one year before Jody Santiago was abducted. That same year, defendant bought a black 1983 Datsun 280ZX. We had a family in my neighborhood growing up that only had 280Zs. The mom, the dad, both kids, they all had 280Zs, different colors. I remember like Nikki driving around the block in her 280ZX. Were you all jelly? I was super jelly. Are you kidding? I had a freaking green station wagon with an orange pinstripe down the side. I learned to drive <laughs> in that
1: station wagon, so don't you be yes, dissing you Yes, you did. Yes, you did.
0: Doesn't matter that you were underage, but whatever. <laughs> After purchasing the 280ZX, Lucas attached a customized license plate that read CMC INC 2 which referred to the name of his company, Carpet Maintenance Company, Inc.
1: I'm super impressed with Richard Leva even getting anywhere near that. I agree. With the letters he saw.
0: Yeah. The guy who said it reminded him of tin can. Right. Like, that's impressive. Totally I agree with impressive. You, Totally <laughs> Three days after Jody's attack, the local newspaper ran an article about her abduction and survival. Two days after that, Lucas traded his Datsun 280ZX for a Toyota pickup truck. Lucas told his friend and employee, Richard Adler, that he could no longer afford the insurance and payments on the car. Richard, who lived with Lucas, helped remove the personalized license plates and sheepskin covers from the car seats and transferred them to the Toyota pickup that he used for his business. The defense also tried to impugn Jody's memory due to trauma. When paramedics brought Jody to the hospital, her blood pressure was seventy over zero suggesting that her heart was unable to pump the needed blood and oxygen to the brain. According to defense expert Dr. Sheldon Zeigelbaum, a physician and psychiatrist, this loss of oxygen, if significant in duration, can cause damage to brain cells and result in memory impairment. During her recovery in the hospital, Jody displayed significant signs of psychomotor impairment, meaning that she spoke and moved very slowly. Jodi was also diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, which can increase the possibility of memory loss. Experts testify that head injuries, such as her significant skull fracture, can impair a person's ability to perceive, remember, and contemplate events and surroundings. To counter the defense presentation, prosecutors walked Jodi through the composite sketch she put together, as well as her recollection of the events of the night of the crime, the semicircular driveway, and the details of Lucas's home's interior that could not possibly have been seen from the outside.
1: Four of Lucas's former employees testified that his 280ZX did not have louvers, countering prosecution witnesses. In addition, Lauren Linker testified that he and Lucas hung out at Linker's house on the night of Jody's abduction until nearly midnight. The visit was memorable because the Linkers had a new chair delivered that same day, and Lucas had commented on how nice it was.
0: I don't think it's that memorable. Yeah, I was
1: <laughs> <say>. <laughs> you compliment myself all the time, and I remember none of it. <laughs> Although Jody had a prior sexual encounter the night before she was kidnapped by David Lucas... Lucas could not be ruled out as contributing the seminal fluid and sperm found on Jody Santiago because both Lucas and the semen donor tested as non secretors, meaning their blood type antigens are not secreted into bodily fluids.
0: According to Google, <laughs> <laughs> I had to look that up.
1: The next victims were Rhonda Strang and Amber Fisher who were both murdered on October 23rd, 1984. As we mentioned, Rhonda was babysitting three-year-old Amber Fisher, who was the child of one of her friends.
0: Kath, I read in an article that this was the first time that Rhonda was babysitting Amber. Oh. I know. I don't know if it's true. I only saw it once. Rhonda's 11-month-old daughter, who was also in the house,
1: was left unharmed, and Rhonda and Amber were both discovered by Rhonda's five-year-old daughter when she returned from kindergarten. Evidence at trial revealed the connection between Rhonda and defendant David Lucas. Lucas had an employee we previously mentioned whose name was Robert Adler. Robert was Rhonda Strang's brother. Robert introduced Lucas to the Strang family. Now, Lucas's partner in the carpet business, Frank Clark, who we mentioned before, testified that he and Lucas would occasionally purchase cocaine from Rhonda. Rhonda's husband was known to use marijuana, cocaine, and methamphetamine. Then he began selling drugs out of their house. Evidence of Rhonda's domestic abuse came out at trial. A family friend once saw Robert threaten to kill her. She also had black eyes and bruises, consistent with her husband Robert's explosive temper. Robert had also threatened Rhonda with a gun and had been arrested for domestic violence. At trial, the evidence showed that at the time of her death, 24-year-old Rhonda Strang had supposedly considered divorcing Robert. She repeatedly expressed her belief that she was being followed and was going to be killed because she knew too much about her husband's narcotics activities. However, detectives could not locate Rhonda's diary or any list of names of people involved with Robert's drug activities. But according to Rhonda's five-year-old daughter, on the night before her mother's murder, Rhonda and Robert had an argument.
0: Prosecutors brought up the fact that Robert Strang went to work at 8 a.m. that morning, and at the time emergency responders arrived at his home at 1.30, he was still at work. Because of a 48-hour jail commitment stemming from a drunk driving conviction, Lucas was supposed to report to a San Diego County detention facility for work credit on the day of Rhonda and Amber's murders. But he rescheduled for a later date, claiming that he had a large carpet job on October 23rd. However, the evidence showed that he did not work on October 23rd, but rather called in sick. Now circling back we are at University of San Diego student Ann Swankey, who, according to the prosecution, was the final victim of David Lucas. At trial, the gas station attendant who saw Ann walk off down the street shortly after midnight testified, as did eyewitness Richard Leva, who explained what he saw and testified to his recollection about the vehicle that had been parked behind Ann's having a license plate consisting of a combination of letters that made him think of the words tin can. Frank Clark, Lucas's business partner and carpet maintenance company, was given immunity from prosecution for drug-related offenses in exchange for his testimony against Lucas. Clark testified that he was a methamphetamine and marijuana user as well as a frequent drinker. He said that on the night of Anne's abduction, he and Lucas left work in Lucas's truck and went to a bar where they drank several beers and consumed crystal meth. They then drove to Clark's home around 10 to 10:30 p.m., where they drank more beer while watching Fatal Vision with Clark's wife. Lucas left Clark's residence at approximately midnight.
1: The following morning, on November twentieth, nineteen eighty-four, Lucas called Frank Clark and said that he needed to take a week off work because he had gone to a bar after leaving Clark's home and someone there had hit him with a beer mug. Richard Adler, the employee who also lived with Lucas and Rhonda Strang's brother Robert, as well as another roommate, Vicki Johnson, testified that on the morning after the murder, Lucas had fresh scratches on his forehead and on both sides of his face. Lucas told his roommates that he had been in a bar fight. Lucas went to work four days after Anne's abduction and Frank Clark noticed that the deep scratches on the left side of his face had begun to heal. They were about four inches long and started from his eyelid and went down his cheek and off his chin. At the time of Lucas's arrest on December 16th, 1984, nearly a month after Anne's abduction, Detective Henderson noticed healed scratches on his face and had a photograph taken of Lucas's face to document the injuries. Dr. Katsuyama, a pathologist, performed Anne's autopsy. Wounds on her neck were consistent with the dog chain having been pulled tightly in an upward motion that caused petechial hemorrhaging. He also testified that the knife wound extended from her right ear to the left side of her neck. Based on the presence of small insect larvae on her trachea, the partial dehydration of her eyes, and the cool weather of the preceding days, Dr. Katsuyama estimated that Anne had been dead for at least 48 hours and probably longer, but he could not determine the exact date and time of death. Dr. Katsuyama was also unable to confirm the presence of semen. According to Deputy Frederick Freiberg, Anne's fingernails had foreign debris consistent with blood and possibly skin, so he clipped the nails and collected them for further analysis. The fingernails were sent to the Serological Research Institute, abbreviated SARI, for testing. Brian Raxall, a forensic serologist with Siri, analyzed the fingernails as well as blood samples taken from Lucas, his wife Shannon, Jody Santiago, and Ann Swankey. Under Ann's fingernails was blood consistent with Lucas's. And again, just a reminder, we're in
0: 1984. They're basically comparing blood types and antigens and proteins in blood. Right. So the blood on Lucas's sheepskin seat
1: covers was consistent with Anne's blood type O. In nineteen eighty four they didn't have quite the DNA analysis that they do now. So instead of hearing numbers like one in three hundred and fifty billion, mm-hmm. the blood characteristics that were derived from the blood stained sheepskin occurred approximately one in forty eight hundred Caucasians, one in six thousand blacks, and one in four hundred and forty four Hispanics or Native Americans.
0: Very different numbers than we hear with DNA.
1: Absolutely. In December 1984, San Diego County Sheriff's Detective Craig Henderson interviewed Lucas's wife, Shannon. Detective Henderson showed Shannon Lucas the dog choke chain that had been found around Anne's neck. Upon seeing the dog collar, she appeared visibly shaken and said that it was one of Duke's, the Lucas's recently deceased dog. Although Shannon did not testify against her husband at the preliminary hearing and died before Lucas's trial, the court let in the testimony, even though it was hearsay.
0: Yeah, the court basically said it fell under the excited utterance exception to the hearsay rule. As a side note, the appellate court said you shouldn't have let that hearsay in. It violated his Sixth Amendment right to cross-examine her, but no harm, no foul. The defense pointed out that no murder weapon was specifically identified, although police confiscated a buck knife and a fillet knife from Lucas's home and car. Charles Merritt was a criminalist who collected evidence from Anne's body and who tested the blood on the sheepskin seat covers. The defense attacked him, saying that he failed to document what technical procedures he used for the testing. They also attacked the credibility of Brian Raxall, the one from the Serological Research Institute. Defense attorneys called other lawyers to the stand who represented people in unrelated cases involving Brian Raxall. The prosecution's forensic serologist who examined the blood evidence was not an honest individual. He held himself out as having a national certificate in applied biology from a polytechnic school in England. However, He never graduated from college, and the classes he took were part of a part-time program geared toward people who worked in the food industry. Raxall admitted that when he applied to the California Association of Criminalists, he lied about having a college degree. As a result, he was the subject of an ethics investigation. His defense was that he mistakenly believed he had the equivalent of a Bachelor of Science degree. He also admitted to being rejected by the American Association of Forensic Scientists because he did not have a college degree. Now, Calf, in the appellate opinion, they talked about tables and charts and graphs and blood. It was the most convoluted testimony I have ever read in a long time. I literally wanted to put forks in my eyes. It was so painful. Anyway, during cross-examination, Raxall admitted that he was involved in a civil suit in which it was alleged that he failed to report the results of his testing of blood evidence collected in a capital murder case. The defense brought this up to impeach his credibility. Basically what happened is he was asked by a defense attorney to re-examine blood evidence that the prosecution had tested. He re-examined it, He came to conclusions that were different than the prosecution's, and he never passed the information on to the defense attorneys in the matter that he should have. And so at trial, this defendant's attorneys did not have the benefit of Raxall's findings in order to cross-examine the prosecution's witness, and it was a big deal. And the defendant got a retrial because of Raxall's behavior.
1: Oh, that's huge. Yeah. In order to point out Brian Raxall's sloppiness, defense counsel also pointed out that the state's criminalist, Charles Merritt, sent a box with 10 of Anne's fingernail clippings to Raxall at the Serological Institute. At trial, when the box of fingernail evidence was opened, there were 11 clippings.
0: Oh!
1: Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> he must have, like, just been clipping his nails at work and didn't realize <laughs> it got in.
0: Seriously.
1: In addition, the defense also pointed out the Charles Merritt found two foreign pubic hairs on Anne's body, one from a pubic combing and one from her left hip. They did not match her hair, Lucas's hair, or Anne's boyfriend. The defense also brought up that none of the latent fingerprints found on the windows of Anne's vehicle, the fuel door on the side of the car, or the gas can, matched Lucas. The identifiable latent prints were made by Anne Swankey or Michael Quinn of the La Mesa Police Department. To counter the prosecution's claim that the dog chain found around Ann's neck belonged to Lucas, the defense called James Boyd, general manager for Hearts Mountain Pet Supplies. He testified that it was a very common dog collar with annual sales that exceeded 33000 The defense attacked every piece of evidence the prosecution offered. The jury began deliberations on June 12th, 1989, and after eight days of deliberation, the jury announced its findings. The jury found defendant David Lucas guilty of the first-degree murders of Suzanne Jacobs, three-year-old Colin, and Anne Swankey, the attempted murder of Jody Santiago, and the kidnappings of Anne and Jody. The jury also found that Lucas personally used a knife during each crime and inflicted great bodily injury upon Anne and Jody. The jury also found true the special circumstance allegation of multiple murder. The jury acquitted Lucas of the murder of real estate agent Gail Garcia and was unable to reach verdicts on the murders of Ron DeStrang and Amber Fisher. Now, Kath, the jury was voting 11 to 1 to convict, Mm -hmm. but couldn't push that to a unanimous verdict. Mm -hmm. Judge Hams ultimately declared a mistrial for that case.
0: So now we have the penalty phase, and this is where the defense puts forth evidence of mitigating factors like maybe mental health, family history, abuse, and also good deeds in order to avoid the harshest punishment. A San Diego Union-Tribune article by journalist Susan Schroeder stated that during the trial's penalty phase, defense witness Dr. Alvin Marks, a clinical and forensic psychologist, testified that Lucas had mixed personality disorder. He said Lucas came from a severely dysfunctional family, had a father who had physically and emotionally abused him, and that Lucas had picked up his father's hatred of women. According to testimony, Lucas was born in the Philippines where his father was stationed in the Navy at the time. Lucas's father was described as a cold man who had a bad temper, at times putting holes in walls with his fists out of anger. Lucas's father reportedly hit his children and once forced Lucas's sister, Kathy, to re-eat the salad she had just vomited onto her plate. The father was apparently especially hard on Lucas.
1: Lucas's younger brother, Don, and his sister, Kathy, also testified on his behalf. Both defended his character and gave specific examples of his protection and kindness. Kathy asked the jury to spare her brother and testified that his execution would hurt her children and family. Kathy's ex-husband and her current husband also testified on Lucas's behalf, as did a niece and nephew. Lucas's friends also testified that he was kind, caring, helpful, and generous. All of his friends and family asked that he be given a sentence of life in prison. Needless to say, emotional pleas of justice from each of the victim's families were also made in court. On Tuesday, September 19th, 1989, almost five years after Ann Swankey's murder, the jury returned a verdict of death, and Judge Hams ordered Lucas to be executed in San Quentin State Prison. Numerous appeals from his 1989 conviction followed, and on August 21st, 2014, the California Supreme Court upheld the death sentence of David Lucas in a
0: 231-page ruling. I'm guessing that's a lot? A ton. Further appellate efforts? Have not been successful. David Lucas remains in San Quentin State Prison in California on death row. Ann Swankey was the final victim in the brutal murders that sent terror through San Diego County in the late 70s and early 80s. After the verdict, her father, USD professor John Swankey, said, It is not vengeance that leads me to thank this court for accepting the recommendation of the jury. No. It is to protect present and future citizens from the outrage of such a criminal. Anne Swankey was buried at Holy Cross Cemetery in San Diego. Suzanne Jacobs and her three-year-old son Colin are also buried there. Rhonda Strang is buried at Greenwood Memorial Park in San Diego. Amber Fisher is buried in the El Cajon Cemetery, and her plot is located in what is referred to as baby land. We could not determine where Gail Garcia was buried. We do know, however, that she left behind a husband named Clifford and a six-year-old son named Clinton. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed it.
1: And thank you for sharing with your friends and family, co-workers, colleagues, strangers you meet on the street.
0: Anyone who's willing to listen to you. <laughs> exactly, because that's what we do. <laughs> if you aren't following us on social media, please do so. We are at Killer Destinations Podcast on Facebook and Instagram.